Verse 25, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, the great teacher, the one who brings illumination to our hearts and our minds. We pray that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word. Glorify yourself and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you familiar with Jonathan Edwards, when I mention that name, perhaps the thought that comes to your mind is his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a good sermon, by the way. Made me very happy, believe it or not, because I'm a Christian. Uh, but one thing you may not know about Jonathan Edwards is that in July of 1750, 90% of the congregation he served voted to dissolve the pastoral relationship between him. Basically, he was fired. And why is that, you may ask? Well, it revolved around this thing that is now called the Halfway Covenant. And there's a lot there, but in essence, this particular church had the practice of baptizing the infants of adults who had been also baptized as infants and yet never made a profession of faith in Christ and therefore were never admitted to the Lord's Supper. So in other words, Jonathan Edwards sought to reform that church's practice of baptizing the infant children of parents who had been baptized as infants, but never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and were never admitted to the Lord's Supper. Um, Jonathan Edwards put it something like this. They have the sign, but not the substance. And this caused a controversy, as you can see. And one of the reasons for that controversy 
is that in those days in New England, for a person to be without baptism caused a stigma to surround that person. But also, it would be mild to say that Edwards insinuated or inferred that those adults who had been baptized and yet not made the profession of faith were not truly Christians. And as I think about that, that is what comes to mind when I read the passage before us. Um, And by the way, Edwards, he lost much, I should tell you. He had a large family to support. He really didn't have any other working skills. And the church let him preach there off and on for about 15 months. But it cost him his ministry there. And uh, you can read about that elsewhere. Now, as far as the text this morning, when I do read this, that situation with Jonathan Edwards does come to my mind. And yet in our passage, we have not a mere gospel preacher. We have the sinless Son of God Himself telling circumcised adults and leaders and members in the covenant community of God, what was in the church, that they do not know the very God that they profess to worship. They have the sign of church membership. They profess to worship the living and true God. And Jesus comes along and He, he says, you don't know Him. And it would cost Jesus, wouldn't it? Eventually. Now he will, a little later in the chapter, freely offer the gospel. He will offer himself to them. But before he does that, he makes a sobering claim concerning their spiritual condition, concerning their standing before God himself. So this morning we return to this scene. Remember where we were when we left off in John chapter 7. It was at the time of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tabernacles. His brothers wanted him to go and rush and go there because um, many disciples had turned away from him in the previous chapter. And they thought if he were to go to Jerusalem at this time where millions of Jews would be, that he could repair the damage. He could just perform the miracles, not preach so much, but perform miracles. And they would say, he is the Messiah. And so he says, my hour has not yet come. You go ahead. And then he does arrive a little later after them. And so at this Feast of Tabernacles, of course, uh, millions of Jews descended upon Jerusalem at this time. And uh, there were the Jews there that John calls them. Uh, They were the religious leaders in that day. There were the people, as John will call them in our text. Those are the pilgrims who were in the dispersion in those areas surrounding Israel. They made their pilgrimage, their journey to Jerusalem. They were in the text before us. And also, there are the locals. There, in verse 25, the local Jewish people who never left Jerusalem or made their way back and now live in the holy city. And we find our Lord Jesus here in this text then being in the midst of the temple, preaching and teaching the people. He is the prophet of God. And so that's what he is doing. And so as we come to verses 25 through 31, we see that there is yet again another misconception concerning the identity of our Lord Jesus. If you look at verse 25, it says there, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, 
Is this not he whom they seek to kill? Again, this is probably the locals who are asking this question. And they are basically wondering this. Um, Jesus is boldly, as they say in the next verse, verse 26, he, he speaks boldly in the temple. He's teaching. Um, do not the rulers seek to murder him, or rather kill him, I should say. And the question that underlines their question is this. Why is Jesus freely allowed to teach in the temple? The thought is, have they changed their minds? Do they now think or perceive, have they come to reason that He is, in fact, the Messiah? I mean, in verse 26, it says, Do the rulers now indeed, or know indeed, that is, do they reason that this is the Christ, that He is truly the Messiah, the Anointed One? And their question, and the way it is put in the Greek, it expects no for an answer. Of course not. That's not what they think. They know that they are seeking to kill him. Now, in verse 27, they reason quickly that he can't be the Christ. And uh, you can read it with me. It says there, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And so their logic goes something like this. No one will know where the true Messiah will come from. We know where Jesus is from. Therefore, Jesus cannot be the true Messiah. And that syllogism, that logic, it has two false premises in it. Uh, They think they know where Jesus is from. And their premise is also based on a faulty Erroneous interpretation of Malachi 3.1, which says that when the Lord comes, He will come suddenly to His temple as He will, uh, as it were, appear from nowhere suddenly, mysteriously into His temple. And of course, their rabbinic tradition would say in some places that they would not know from where the Messiah would come. And so again, it's based on a faulty interpretation of Scripture There are other beliefs, by the way, at this time in Jerusalem among the Jews. There were those who did think that Jesus, or rather the Messiah, would come from Bethlehem. Um, And that's true. That is what was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And so we read the pages of the Gospels. We look at Matthew 2 and the first five verses there. Herod inquires as to where this one would be born. And they tell him where? Bethlehem, based on the Old Testament. And so in Luke 2, we find indeed the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, is born in Bethlehem. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He grew up there, but he was born in Bethlehem. And so Jesus hears this. And in verses 28 and 29, once again, he claims his divine origin. Not that he had a beginning. But he proclaims from where it is that he comes. Of course, that's heaven. Because he is the second person of the Godhead. Well, if you look at verse 28, it says, Then Jesus cried out, and is with a loud voice, in agony. I think in the Gospels it says three or four times that Jesus cried out. And one of those times was on the cross. 
And this distresses our Savior that these people still are so dull, unable to understand, unable to believe what He has said repeatedly to them about His origin, being from heaven, the eternally begotten Son of God, even as John 5 puts it, making Himself to be equal with God. And so then in verse 28, we are told what He says. Uh, He cried out, He taught in the temple saying, You both know Me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of Myself, but He who sent Me is true, whom you do not know. Some say the Lord here uses irony. In fact, it could be put as a question. Um, He could be saying, and you know me and know where I am from. Yes, I I am from here. I'm from Bethlehem. Or it could be that he's asking the question, "And, and you know me? And you know where I am from? And so the sense would be, oh, really? Uh, You think you know where I'm from? And so in verse 28, the second half, he says, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. And so Jesus here is is basically saying he is not a self-appointed prophet. No, God the Father has sent him. God the Father has testified of him. And he says there that God, the one who has sent him, is true. Aletheia. What what does he mean by that? Um, I think a couple of things. That, of course, God is truth. God is truthful. He is the truth. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. But also, when you think about God's promises in the Old Testament, the promises of the covenant of grace, God is truthful. He is true. He cannot lie. He has seen those promises to come to their fruition. He sent His Son. His Son has appeared on the scene. And of course, at His baptism, also at His transfiguration, there's the voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Then there were the miracles testifying of the truthfulness of the claims of Christ to be God's eternally begotten Son. And so the point is, God cannot lie. God is truthful. You Jewish people, you have heard His voice. You have heard reports about it. You have seen the miracles that I've performed. God is true. His testimony concerning me, the Lord Jesus, is true. But notice what he says at the end of verse 28. Speaking of God, presumably the Father, whom you do not know. Oh, they know about Him. Perhaps they've read about Him in the Old Testament. They've heard testimony about Him from their traditions. But Jesus says, you do not know Him. Do you think this would have ruffled some feathers? The feathers of those Jewish people who in their self-righteousness claim to be the people of God, heaven-bound, simply because they had been circumcised because of the things that they had done, because of the traditions they had followed. Of course, it would have. But Jesus speaks the truth. And yes, He speaks it freely and boldly, as we see here in the text. 
So in verse 29, he says, but I, and it really says this, but I myself, the implication is I alone, not you, but I know him for I am from him and he sent me. Again, Jesus talks about how he came down from heaven, his incarnation, his mission to come and redeem his people, Israel. The church of the living God. And so, what is happening in verses 30 and 31 is that the momentum now shifts to Jesus' favor, if we want to put it like that. In verse 30 it says, Therefore they sought to take Him, the leaders, but no one laid a hand on Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. That's John's commentary. It is truth. It is of the Spirit. And uh, we are told once again, Jesus' time had not yet come. His time to go to the cross had not yet come. That would be six months from this point at the time of the Passover. Verse 31, And many of the people believed in Him and said, When the Christ comes, will He do more signs than these which this man has done? Again, the expected answer is no. And so we're told they believed in him. Perhaps some of them had true saving faith. Probably they had that temporary faith that was going on in John 6. Maybe they thought he was a political Messiah like the others had thought. He's going to come. He's going to raise up an army. He's going to deliver us from the pagan Romans and give us back the land freely that is ours. But they're, they're on his side now. And John says many of them believed in him. And so as they say here, will there come another who will perform many works or more works than this one? The works being the miracles. You know, if they would have read Isaiah 35, they would have seen there that when Messiah did come, he would come to heal those who are blind, those who are deaf, and so forth, so that this is one of those works that would attend the coming of the Messiah. So they're identifying Him as such. And this poses a problem now. I mean, think about it. All the Jews now there at Jerusalem, there's all of this whispering, all of this murmuring, and the momentum now shifts to Jesus' favor. This threatens the authority, the privileges, the power positions of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. So what are they going to do? Well, in verses 30 and 32, we see that they want to seize him. They want to arrest him. Remember, before this, they had already sought to kill him. So verse 30, therefore they sought to take him, to seize him. Again, no one was able to do that because God providentially hindered that. In verse 32, it says again, because they heard these things, um, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Of course, they were unsuccessful. And uh, this is one of those instances where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Because you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they clashed. They were not of the same school. They were members of the Sanhedrin. 
And so now they unite. They conspire together against the Lord and against His anointed to arrest Him. And why do they want to do this? Well, because He, quote, broke the Sabbath. He healed that man at the pool, remember? Um, He spoke blasphemy, allegedly, by making himself equal with God. And that's the big one. Both of those are the big one, big ones. And, and so we got them now. All they need is that monkey trial that will go on just before his death. But they cannot lay a hand on him. And so in verses 33 through 36, we find that sobering truth that Jesus utters. To them. Verse 33 Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. What's he talking about? Well, who is the one who sent him? God the Father. Where is God the Father? In heaven. I mean, he's omnipresent, but he has a special dwelling place in heaven. Jesus says, Our Father, who art where? In heaven, hallowed be thy name. So that's where God has a special dwelling place, his own father. That's where he was dwelling there as well. And he says he will go to him who sent him. Jesus knows he is going to suffer in Jerusalem. Jesus knows that he will be crucified. He will lay down his life for his own. And he knows that he will be raised from the dead, that he, along with the Father and the Spirit, will raise his body from the dead. And after that, he will ascend back into heaven from where he came and will sit down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus will repeat this to his disciples in John chapter 13, John chapter 14, John chapter 16. And then again, if you look here at verse 34, he says, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. It is impossible. You do not have the ability to come where I will be. Again, where is that? Heaven after his ascension. In John chapter 13 and verse 33, Jesus speaks to His disciples there, the ones who do believe in Him. He says, little children, I shall be with you a little longer. You will seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, that's what He said. And so He is telling them that He is going to the right hand of the Father. But to these here, He says, you do not know Me, and where I am, you cannot come. He's going to speak to them a little later in John chapter 8. In verse 21 of John 8, Jesus tells them, I am going away, and you will seek Me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. He doesn't say that to His disciples. He is saying this to those who are obstinate, who are rebellious to to Him, who will not believe Him or His Gospel. You will die in your sin. 
And they say, will he kill himself? Verse 22 of John 8, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so you see what Jesus is telling them here. If they do not believe his gospel, if they do not come to him, if they do not flee to him for forgiveness of sins forever and salvation, they will die in their sins. What a sobering and yet truthful statement he says. These are haunting words for many. For those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who do not know the living and true God, they should be haunting words. Jesus has already said by this point in Matthew 7 and verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. The point is, now is the time for these Jewish people, whether they're the leaders the locals, or the pilgrims, it is now time for them to ask. It is now time for them to seek. It is now time for them to knock on heaven's door and to go through the door, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 34, again, he says, you will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. What does he mean by that? After His ascension, they will at some point seek Him. They will be in distress. They will be distraught. They will seek to find the Messiah. But they will not find Him. And they cannot go to Him. Um, Perhaps at the Day of Judgment, this would even be true. That when they stand before God to give a reckoning for all of the deeds done in the body... All of their sins are laid open and bare before the living and true God to whom we all must give an account. They're looking. Where are you, Jesus? I need you. Oh, wait. He's the judge of all men. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so the point is, Jesus is saying, I am the true Messiah. If I'm not down here, but you are, and you look for Messiah, for the Christ, you will not find Him. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah and I'll be in heaven. It's that simple. He is the true Messiah. And so then they will be shut out from heaven. They cannot come to heaven where He will be, where He is even now, has been since His ascension. And so the door is shut. Just as it was after 120 years of preaching by Noah, the door was shut to the ark so that no others could go in except for those who heard the message of Noah, who believed the message of Noah and went into the ark. Just as that door in Matthew 25 in the parable of the ten virgins was shut so that those who did not believe, those who did not have the oil, those who did not have the Holy Spirit could not enter and go into the wedding banquet. Matthew Henry, 
commenting on what Jesus says here. He says, Jesus is saying something like this. You shall expect the Christ to come, but your eyes shall fail with looking for Him, and you shall never find Him. He continued, Henry. He said, those who hate to be where Christ is in His Word and His ordinances on earth are very unfit to be where He is in glory in heaven. For indeed, heaven would be no heaven to them. Such are the antipathies of an unsanctified soul to the felicities of that state. What did Henry mean? Well, as we see here with these Jewish people, if they don't like Jesus, and yet they expect to be in heaven, guess what? Not only are they not going to go there, but if they could go there, they wouldn't like it because Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus would be there. And so if a person does not like to attend true worship, if a person does not like to hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, empowered by the Spirit and fellowship with God's true people, that person is unfit for heaven. Why? They will never be happy and satisfied in heaven. Why? Because those same people will be there in heaven. What will be proclaimed in heaven? God's truth. His Word. What will happen in heaven? Worship. We see that in Revelation. And so in verses 35 and 36, we see that Jesus' true meaning here to His words really doesn't even cross their minds. They show contempt for the, the Greeks. And the Greeks could be a synonym for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. They say, um, where does he intend to go? They aren't thinking vertically. They're thinking horizontally. Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So they have this condescending attitude towards the, the Gentiles, which they should not have. But also, ironically, they prophesy as to what Jesus will command after his resurrection, right? The Great Commission. Go and make disciples of whom? All the nations, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the world. That's our calling as a church, to worship him in spirit and truth, to seek those who might seek him as he seeks them, to make disciples of the nations. And so, they are slow and dull and they cannot believe because they will not believe. So as we think about this text this morning, let me make four applications for us this morning. As always, disclaimer, you can probably find more. Uh, maybe we'll find and hear some, some more in our Sunday school hour after the service this morning. But as we examine this text, um, these words of our Lord Jesus should bring to the forefront of our minds that great separation at the last day, where the sheep will be separated from the goat, where the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous. Why? Because as he says in our text, where I am, you cannot come. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ cannot come. They will not come to heaven after they die, when they die. And by the way, remember Luke's gospel, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. 
Rich man goes to that place of fire and torment. He just wants a drop of water to be put on his tongue. And there's Abraham. Uh, There's um, Lazarus who is in Abraham's bosom, who is in heaven. And Abraham there is kind of the go-between. And he's talking to that rich man. And uh, he tells that rich man in Luke 16, 26, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Purgatory is a doctrine from hell. There are no second chances after you die. It's appointed once for a man to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews tells us. So you need to remember that. So what do we say to the unbelieving world? We should tell them as we talk about Jesus, you know, my, my friend, one day it'll be too late. After you breathe your last breath, that's, that's it. No second chances then. We could tell them about the rich fool in Luke 12 and 20. Jesus tells that parable. Um, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And this man just stores up stuff. And, and he thinks his attitude is, well, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Live for today. Don't think about the future. Don't think about eternity. But Jesus says that God came to that fool who is rich and said, fool, do you not know that your life, your soul on this night is required of you? And as we think about that, we should also then see from this text and think about uh, the urgency of the gospel. The urgency of the gospel. And uh, maybe some might think, uh, what is this a Presbyterian church? Because um, aren't you God's frozen, chosen? And uh, yeah, that's sometimes the case, isn't it? Are we prone to be bumps on the log, to inactivity, um, because we believe in the biblical truth of predestination, that God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, the doctrine of election, He's chosen some out of humanity for Himself to be saved through Jesus, as Ephesians 1 says. Yes, all of that is true. But Jesus, the preacher of preachers, He is the prince of preachers. He tells these people, where I am, He cannot come. And then a few words later, He will give the Gospel call to these people. The same Jesus who is in our text is the same Jesus who in Luke 14, 23, tells His disciples, go into the highways, the byways, the hedges, and compel them to come in. Go grab them. Drag them in to the kingdom. Not literally. He's not saying, King George, get your army and go conquer Jerusalem and all the pagans and bring them into the church and put water on them. No. But through the Gospel, through your preaching, through your telling of the Gospel, bring them in that my house may be filled. R.B. Kuyper, some of you are like, well, who is that? Um, he was a man affiliated with the OPC back in the 30s. And he taught at Westminster Seminary, a Reformed seminary that believes in this thing called predestination and election. He was a Reformed pastor. Well, he wrote a book about evangelism. 
It's called God-Centered Evangelism, not man-centered evangelism. But in that book, he has a brief chapter on the urgency of the gospel, the urgency of evangelism. And he notes that the reason for urgency and evangelism lies within God Himself. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. He will punish sin. But God is also gracious. God is also merciful. God is also a loving God. And He calls sinners to His Son. Why? That they may be forgiven forever and spend eternity with Him. And He is able. He's all-powerful. And to those who come to Jesus, He will, as Jesus has already said, in no wise cast out. What about you? What about me? Do we have a sense of the urgency of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? We see our nation going to hell. We see our nation in rebellion against God. What is the ultimate solution for that? It's to be right with God. How are people made right with God? It's through Jesus Christ. That is the solution. That is the answer that we hold. Jesus tells us to preach the gospel to every creature. Third, to my fellow Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a secondary application in our text and this should bring comfort to us. We should find here Comfort in God's sovereign providence over all of life. Once again, in verse 39, we're told that they sought to lay hands on Jesus, but no one laid a hand on Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. I believe the Scriptures teach that even the day and time of our very death are predetermined by God. The old reformer John Calvin said we are all safe as Christians. We are safe from all risk until God is pleased to call us away. Job is speaking. I think it's Job. In Job 14.5 it says since his days are determined. Speaking of mankind. His days are determined. The number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. And maybe you fear that day when you will breathe your last. If Jesus doesn't come back first, you fear your death. Romans 8, verse 38. Paul says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you rest in the promise of God? Do you entrust your very life to the One who is the ruler and King of creation? Well, last... We see here that the spiritual callousness, ignorance, and rebellion of these first century Jewish men remind us Christians today that were it not for our own sad 
immutable and unchangeable condition. Were it not for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And the application of the gospel to us by his Holy Spirit. We too would remain the antagonists of Christ. We would remain as those who are ignorant of the gospel of Christ. Or those who misunderstand the gospel of Jesus and thus be shut out of heaven forever. I am what I am by the grace of God, Paul said. And but God, as Jesus tells us, we have received His mercy, His forgiveness. We have believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And Jesus says this in John 14.23 or 14.3. If I go and prepare a place for you, the Christian, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That where I am, you will be also. Brothers and sisters, we have the hope of heaven based on the person, work, and promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. Should that not provoke us and move us to thanksgiving and praise to the living God? Of course it should. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the warnings in Holy Scripture. Lord, we thank You for the blessings and promises of Your Holy Gospel in Christ Jesus. And we pray that You, who are the Creator and therefore are worthy of our worship, would also stir us to worship and obedience because You are also our Redeemer through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.